Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. We're going to cover the rest of the chapter, verses 14 through 33. 14 through 33. The title of this morning's message is God's Divine Plan. God's Divine Plan. We come to a, a section of Scripture that is very tough. I'm going to be honest with you. I have a book in my library called The Most Neglected Chapter in the Bible. And if you hadn't guessed it, it's Romans chapter 9. But fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you view it, we go verse by verse. I'm just kidding. Verse by verse, so we cover everything. We cover the entire counsel of God, and we're going to try to figure this out together. So let's pray and ask God to speak to each and every one of us as we read his word and as I teach it. Lord God, we're so thankful for all that you've given us this morning allowing us to come before your throne to worship you, our holy God. We're so thankful for that, and I pray, Lord, that we would never take that lightly as we stand before you, a sinful people who is saved by grace and allowed to worship you, a holy God. We thank you for that. Lord, we ask this morning as we open your holy word that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit that the inspired text would speak to us, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and our minds and allow us to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 33. Before we read that, though, since we had a break last week in our, in our teaching, I want to give you the context of what's going on here again. So often in Sunday mornings, we forget what was taught last week, let alone two weeks ago, because we're taking little chunks, and we forget to remember what's the context of what's going on in the chapter. If you remember at the very beginning of chapter 9, Paul was trying to explain to the church at Rome, what about Israel? The context is, if the Jews are God's chosen people, then why are so many at this time, and when Paul was writing, Why are they rejecting God? Why is the nation of Israel in general predominantly rejecting God? And Paul was clarifying to the church who Israel really is. He was saying not all Israel is Israel. There is a spiritual Israel. And as we learned and as we went through the text, we learned that just because you were born Jewish does not mean you are true Israel. And we'll go over that again. And this is the context that Paul was teaching and reminding the church that true Israel are those who have faith in Jesus Christ, not necessarily just because they're born from the Jewish race or nation. And so we're going to talk about that. So that's the context he's teaching. And he's going to pick up the questioning about the way God decides To roll out his plan. That's why the title of this morning's message is God's divine plan. It'd be so nice for God to reveal to us all that he's going to do verbally, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Hey, God, tell me to go left, to go right, to go straight. What you want me to do today, tell me. But God does not operate that way. And so here before us, we're going to see part of God's plan. And so let's read. We'll read the whole section and come back. And he begins with the question, what then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom 
I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man whom wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. And that I, excuse me, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and use the other for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And he shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on earth throughout, excuse me, thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us the posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So there we have the text. Again, the context is Paul is trying to explain to the church how God decides who will be his son or his child and how he will use that starting with the nation Israel. And we'll see some application. So let's go back to the very beginning. And I'm probably going to think four points I'm going to make this morning about God's sovereign plan. The, the, the first point is this, that God is gracious to show mercy and compassion on anyone. God, let me say that again, God is gracious to show mercy and compassion on anyone. It is not deemed by anybody for God to show grace and mercy. And so the fact that he does do it is awesome. And so Paul starts with this. Question, is there any injustice with God? Meaning, is God unrighteous in the way that he dispenses his mercy and compassion? Because remember the context, he was showing the Roman church, this is, what is, this is who Israel is. This is how God determined who spiritual Israel is. And so he asked the question, is there any unrighteousness in the way that God determines that? It's a rhetorical question. 
Unfortunately, as you'll see when we go through this, Paul doesn't always answer the question. He asks a question, and then he asks more questions. You're like, dang it. Just tell us, Paul. Tell us what you're saying. So that's the big question. Is there any injustice with God? Is God unrighteous? Think of that yourself. Is God unrighteous in how he does things? If you remember two weeks ago when I started chapter 9, I said, there are things sometimes that we don't fully understand and we misinterpret and we need to let the Bible be the interpreter. And usually when we misunderstand something, it's not God's fault. It's not the Bible's fault. It's the way that we interpret it. So we need to be cautious as we're interpreting Scripture. Some things are really plain and easy and some things are a little more tougher. And some things, honestly, are not explained. And so just know that going through, I I promise you, I probably won't answer every question that this text brings up, but I'm in good company because Paul doesn't either. So it's left for you to grapple with. So again, an easy one. Is God unrighteous in the way that he deals or he dispenses his mercy and compassion? And right away, look at Paul answers his own question. He says, may it never be. Basically say, not at all. Some translations say, God forbid. We know through Scripture that God is not unrighteous. He is righteous and holy and true and faithful. So the very question itself is easily answered. No, He's not. He's not unrighteous. So we know that fact. You might not like or understand all the ways of God, and we never will, but we know one thing. Scripture says that God is righteous. So we can agree with Paul that say, may it never be. God is not unrighteous or unjust in the way that he dispenses his mercy and compassion. As a matter of fact, the right thing to do for God would to be condemn every person because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which we've already seen. So God would be righteous in doing that. That's why I said at the very beginning, God is gracious to even show mercy and compassion on anyone. But he says, God forbid that we would conclude that God is unrighteous. So let's look at the greater context again of the letter. Remember, throughout Romans, Paul is, as I said, has been saying that everyone is unrighteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. And in the very beginning, he's telling us that in order to be included in God's family, what must we do? We must have faith. Our part is to have faith in Christ, in God's plan. And again, in the greater context, he's addressing Israel, how is it that God included the Gentiles and only some of the nation of Israel in the true Israel? And he comes to chapter 9 and is explaining that. So Israel is those who put their faith in God. We've learned that already. And if you don't remember, well, then you have to go back and listen to the sermon that I started on in chapter 9 explaining who Israel is. Israel are all those who put their faith in in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Israel is not, spiritual Israel, I should say, is not by nationality. It is not by being circumcised. It is not those who perform religious duties. Remember, we spent the beginning of Romans talking about that. And even us, we, you can't say, well, I'm Christian because I went to, I was baptized as a baby. I'm Christian because I went to catechism. Or CCD, for those of you that are brought up in the Catholic faith. 
Those do not make you Christian. Or I went to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I went to a private school. My dad's the pastor. Doesn't get you in. Doesn't do anything for you. Holds you more accountable is what it does for all those things. So Paul's established that already. It is by faith we are saved through grace. So faith is our part here. So number one, again, is there any injustice with God? May it never be. God has decided how things are going to be, and he said you must have faith. That's, that's the ticket. You must have faith in Christ, in the gospel, in all that's been revealed up to and prior to chapter 9 in Romans. And then he goes and he points to Scripture to back up his point. Look at verse 15. He, for he says, after saying may it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The second point is this, that God is the only one who determines how salvation or judgment will be applied. God says, I'm the one that decides who I have compassion on and who I have mercy on. And he points to the Old Testament in the story with Moses You may or may not remember this story in Exodus 33. The nation of Israel had committed idolatry while Moses was up there talking to God. We went over this story before. Aaron was down in the bottom and he told everybody, hey, let's take off our gold earrings and our gold rings and throw it in the fire. I remember what popped out, a golden calf. Then he told everybody to worship it. This is the God that led us out of Israel. Remember that story? And God was going to just wipe everybody out. God was like, I can't believe these people. I'm done. And Moses was pleading with God, please don't, Lord God. Don't do this to these people. Reveal yourself to us. Don't judge us. Stay with us. Follow us and lead us to the promised land in Exodus 33. And God decides, you know what, Moses? I'm going to listen to your prayer. I'm going to show you, reveal yourself to me, but I will have mercy on who I will have mercy on, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion on. God was well within his right to destroy the nation of Israel, but he says, I'm not going to. I'm going to have mercy and compassion on who I will. So again, God is the one who determines how salvation and judgment will be applied. I'm sure none of you would fault God for destroying all of Israel right there for worshiping the golden calf. but again, God says, I'm going to show mercy on them, Moses, but I get to decide on the mercy and compassion on whom I will reveal it to or who I will dispense it to. It's not, God is not dependent on us to show that. This is Paul's point. God decides who he's going to show mercy and compassion to. a matter of fact, look at verse 16. He says, so then, concluding in his statement, he goes, so then, it, not, it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Emphasizing this point, it is God who decides who he will show mercy on. God initiates the mercy. It is not man's running or striving or doing something to earn it. It is all God. He decides. And then he points to another section of Exodus of the Old Testament as he continues to build upon this the way that God dispenses mercy and justice in verse 17. And the point is this, is that God demonstrates his mercy and justice through 
human actions. Look at what he says. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And the point is this, God demonstrates his mercy and judgment through human actions. God told Pharaoh, the reason why you were raised up to be the leader of all of Egypt is because I put you there. And I put you there for a purpose, Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power through you. Now, what the scripture doesn't say here, and I want, I want us to be cautious as we interpret this, and this is my own personal belief in this. And again, uh, if I'm wrong, it's because I'm misinterpreting it. And so I'll say that right here. I don't, it says nothing about salvation here, does it? It doesn't say that Pharaoh wasn't saved, that God hardened Pharaoh so that he wouldn't be saved. Now, that may have been the outcome, but that's not the point. I don't think that's the point Paul is making here. He's like, I raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate my power and my mercy. Another way that God shows his compassion, his mercy, is by even using people who do not follow him. And that's why I say God demonstrates his mercy and judgment in human actions. God hardened Pharaoh in order to fulfill his purpose. Let me give you an example of this. Turn with me to the book of Joshua. Because short, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Because shortly after God brought Israel out of Egypt, and he was taking them to the promised land, remember he told Pharaoh, I brought you up to display my power. And he also says, as we may get to it in a moment, oh, I'll get there in a moment, let's not go there first. But I want to show you an example of how God demonstrated his power by doing this in Egypt. Because when the nation of Israel finally got to the promised land, the people in the promised land had heard what God did in Egypt. And look at what uh, this lady Rahab says in uh, chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 9. She says this, I know that the Lord has given you the land, the land that Israel was coming into. Why? And that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. So they're afraid of Israel. And why? Look at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer. Why? Because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is an example of God doing something that they didn't see at the time, that in the future, other people were going to see and go, you know what? God is powerful and awesome. And the whole, this whole town was afraid of Israel. Why? Because God was with them. And God demonstrated his power, as he told Pharaoh, through you, through him. So God demonstrates his mercy and judgment through human actions. He used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. He made Pharaoh, it says to us here in this context, to not let Israel go, which is our third point. 
God's sovereignty does not excuse our responsibility. This is the big one. God's sovereignty does not excuse our responsibility. Well, what do you mean? Well, let's go back to our text in Romans chapter 9, looking at verse 19. Because this is the question that you might be thinking of. It's a question that Paul anticipated was going to be asked. If God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and God hardens who he wants to harden, because he told uh, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. You were going to not let my people go so that I can demonstrate my power. The question comes this in verse 19. Will you say then, why does God still find fault for whom can resist his will? Why does God still find fault if he's the one who hearted Pharaoh? Why does he blame Pharaoh if he's the one that did it? That's the question Paul's anticipating from his hearers. And then he says, who can resist God? Who can stop God from doing what God wants to do? You're like, all right, let's see how Paul's going to answer. Let's look at Paul's answer. He answers with about five other questions on top of that. He doesn't even answer it, I don't think. But that's okay. I think other scripture does for us. Look at verse 20. On the contrary... He's answering his own question. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? That's his first response. That if, how can God find fault? How can God blame us? He says, who are you even to question God, O man? Like, you're a man. You are not God. You don't understand his ways. How can you ask that question or blame God? What's really happening here is he's anticipating somebody to go, well, if, if God does everything, then I'm not responsible for the bad things that I do. It's not my fault. God willed it. God hardened me. God made me do this. It was in God's plan. If God wants to do something, he can just do it through me. They're basically trying to take the responsibility off themselves and blame God. That's why I said this point is God's sovereignty does not excuse our responsibility our responsibility for things. It's like blaming your mom and dad for things that you do. Right? My mom and dad, you know, it's their fault. Careful now. Mom and dad aren't as merciful as God. <laughs> I think of uh, Bill Cosby when he's all, let the beatings begin. Well, the question, he answers, who are you, O man, to ask God that question, to question how God does things? And log- it seems like a logical question, right? But Paul doesn't answer. Remember, he continues to ask questions of those who would ask this. He says this, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way, will it? The creation cannot question the creator why he made him this way. If God is truly the creator and he can do what he wants to do, how dare we think we can ask God to explain himself, is what Paul's saying. Unfortunately, we live in a society who does that, that God needs the answer to us. And if we don't like the way God operates, we're going to change it. That's what our culture does. But we don't think God should operate that way. You know, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not the way we do it. In Western civilization, God needs to answer to us. 
And this is what he's saying. You can't, you don't do that. <laughs> he says, the, again, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? At verse 21, he goes on, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and use the other one for common use? So he's given the example of a, a potter. If he's making a pot, doesn't he have every right to make the pot the way he wants to make it? Does not, does, so that means, does not the creator God have the right to do what he pleases with his creation? Are we God's creation or not? Yes, we are. Does God not have the right to do what he wants with us? I believe he does. And then he goes on to verse 22. I like this in 23. And I like this for a reason, not for the initial reason. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, which he did with Pharaoh, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And did he not do so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? What's he saying here? I like this because it says, what if? He didn't say God did this. You're not going to get that from this text. He says, what if? He didn't say God did do it this way. He says, what if God decided to make, uh, what does he say again? What if, through will, though willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured much patience, or endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared to destruction. What if God did decide to do it this way? Who are we to say anything? He didn't say he did it, but what if? Again, if God makes the rules, he could do whatever he wants. Now, he doesn't necessarily do it this way, but Paul's just saying, okay, what if God did decide to do that? What if God did decide to say, you know what, I'm making you for the purpose of destruction and I'm making this person to glorify me. What right do any of us have to say, God, you can't do that. If he's the creator, it doesn't matter what we think. But he doesn't say he did that. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying, what if? Right? It's like if I don't like, when, if you're a kid or when I was, if I didn't like what my mom and dad did, so what? It doesn't matter. They said no, it's, it's no. And what if they did it just to be mean? Well, so what? It's mom and dad, they, they, they get to do what they want. And God the same way. What if God decided to do that? What are you going to do? I'm not playing anymore. I'm not in your creation. <laughs> you see how rid- ridiculous that is? You can create the greatest argument against God for the way God should do things, but it doesn't matter how smart we think we are how we can try to weasel out of it. Because if God is the creator and he made it this way, he makes the rules, then there's nothing we can do about it. What are you going to say? I'm not playing God. It doesn't matter. We're, we're still playing because we are created by him. That's the logic of that. If God created all things, you don't get to decide halfway through that I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to play by your rules. Our society does that. Does that mean that it doesn't affect them? That God is no longer God? Even if the whole world turned against God, does that mean God doesn't exist? No, God is still God. And so Paul doesn't reconcile this for us, unfortunately. He never answered the question, did he? Will you say then 
why does God find fault and who can resist the will of God? He didn't answer that. He just gave you a bunch of things to think about. But thankfully, I believe Scripture also shows us that even though God is in control of things and he shows mercy on whom he shows mercy on, that we're also responsible for the decisions that we make. And I'm going to show you just three, three verses here in demonstrating this. Uh, Paul, in Romans 14, so turn over a few pages to Romans chapter 14, verse 12, because here Paul might be looking like he's arguing one side, and then he goes back and looks like he argues the other side. Romans chapter 14, verse 12, he says this, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Very plainly, each one of us, even though God created us, God shows mercy on who he's going to show mercy on, still have to give an account for what, who we are to God. So you have the one side of God and the other side of human responsibility. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. As a matter of fact, your quote in your bulletin, it talks about this. I like this quote from John MacArthur. He says, oh, I have, the, I have an old one. Dang it. Could you show that quote, Nicole? There you go. It says this, if you don't have your bulletin, like me. For those who receive God's word as inerrant, meaning us, if we believe this is God's inerrant word, meaning it was uh, transpired by him without error, it's the word of God, right? He says, there will always be a tension between fully acknowledging God's sovereign will and fully acknowledging his requirement of human faith. There is that tension in Scripture. God's sovereignty, meaning His control over, his, over everything, but yet He requires that we have faith in Him. There's that tension always going on in Scripture. And since we believe the Word of God is true, we have to deal with that. And it may, be not, be, it may not be reconcilable this side of heaven. Now there are those who try to do it, and you may be familiar with these terms. There's those who hold to a Calvinistic point of view in salvation, and those who hold to an Arminian's view of salvation. We're not going to go through that this morning because it would take a long time. And so they try to reconcile that. And one, I think one goes too far on one side, and one goes too far on the other side. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're of those camps. And I've yet to hear either one of them argue for me successfully to where I can reconcile it in my own mind. And maybe I'm not smart enough but I don't know. But Paul clearly says that, we're, that God is, has mercy on whom he has mercy on, and God is sovereign, but yet we must stand before God and give an account for what we've done. Jesus himself in Matthew twelve thirty six says this, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Again, we're responsible for the things that we say. And lastly, in Revelation 12, verse, uh, 20, verse 12, a moment in, in future history, it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It says this, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. 
So our words and our deeds we're held accountable for. But yet God controls all things. But yet he tells us we're accountable for all things. How does that work? I don't know. I told you I wouldn't give you the answers to all these things. But Paul didn't do it either. Paul just asked questions. So let's conclude with our last point here. So God's sovereignty does not excuse, I hope you see it, does not excuse our responsibility. We're still responsible even though God is sovereign. And lastly this, God's salvation requires belief in the Messiah. God's salvation requires belief in the Messiah. And we get this from the following, verses 25 through 33. So after saying that, hey, what if God does this to show his power? Verse 24, actually, he says, Even us, whom he also called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And this was a scripture I used two weeks ago to help demonstrate who real Israel is. It includes the Gentile believers. The apostles saying, not only the Jews, but also among Gentiles. And he uses the Old Testament. He says, as he says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where you, it is, was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. These were prophecies concerning New Testament believers outside of the nation of Israel. A people that were not my people are going to be my people. They're going to be the living uh, sons of the living God, the same titles that are held to the nation Israel. So Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ are included in God's plan of salvation. But also there's a remnant of the Jews who will also be saved. Let's look at the rest of this, starting in verse 27. Isaiah cries out, Concerning Israel, speaking of the nation Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, so though there are a lot of people in the nation Israel, look at what he says, it is the remnant that will be saved. Not all of Israel, the remnant will be saved. He says, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and Quickly. He goes on, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left it left to us a posterity, meaning a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. If it wasn't for God saving a remnant of Israel, the nation of Israel would have gone away like Sodom and Gomorrah or been judged. And then he asked the question, what shall we say then? That Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did did not arrive at that law. He's saying, so the Gentiles, they didn't even pursue righteousness, but they obtained righteousness. And the Jews, who pursued righteousness through the law, didn't obtain it. And he says, why? This is why, because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. And this is what Paul had been saying up to chapter 9, that it's not by works. It's not by um, your religious circumcision and being born in the nation of Israel that you'll be saved. No, it's by faith. And faith in what? In verse 33, "Just just as it is written, 
Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, is Christ, the chief cornerstone. So that's why I say God's salvation requires belief in the Messiah. By faith, Gentiles who are now included in the sons of God, they must believe. And the nation Israel, in order for them to be saved, they too must be, they must believe. And all must pursue it, or both must pursue it by faith. And that's faith in Jesus. So how should we respond to God's sovereignty, those of us in this room this morning, to these truths? Well, number one, we should praise God for his mercy and compassion. That God has even, as I began, shown you mercy or compassion, shown me mercy or compassion. We should praise him for that. Because I don't know about you, I know what I deserve from God. I know that I've fallen short of his glory. I, every day I fall short of his glory. And he would be just to punish me. I don't know about you. If you ever thought, it's like, man, why didn't God punish me? He, he could punish me right now for what I just did or thought or said. And he would be well within his right, but he doesn't. He's merciful and compassionate. And some of us live like they're going to get punished every second by God. But God is not like that. He's merciful and compassionate. So we should praise him for that. We might not understand all the intricacies of it and how he goes about and doing it and why he would even do it. But the fact is that he does. But we should praise him for that. Secondly, I hope that you understand now that you should stay faithful in all situations in your life. You know why? Because God will demonstrate his power and his mercy through you. So no matter what you're going through right now, just like he raised up Pharaoh to magnify himself through Pharaoh, he does that with us. Whatever's going on in our life, there's people watching. We're a witness to everybody around us. And how do you not know that he may be using the situation you're in right now to reach somebody else? Because you stayed faithful and they saw you go through something that led them to be curious about your faith in Christ. And you never even had to say anything. You just trusted God through the whole situation. So again, I want to encourage you, church, stay faithful in all situations in your life. You never know what God's going to do through that. Thirdly, trust God's design for your life. Don't be upset with God's calling in your life. You know, maybe you're like, maybe I want to be like Pharaoh as far as like responsibility. And you're not. You're like, I'm, I'm nobody. I don't, I don't do anything great for the kingdom of God. Just trust God's design for your life. He's given each and every one of us, if we're in the body of Christ, a certain responsibility, a certain calling. And we'll talk about that later on in Romans. He's made some people in the body of Christ the hands and the feet and the eyes and the mouth. And it's all we needed all working together so that we could grow up into maturity in the body of Christ. Trust God's design for your life. You might not understand it. You might be in a place that you don't like it. But trust God. God's doing something. God has a special plan for each and every person who's in the body of Christ. So those two really go hand in hand. Trust God and stay faithful so that God can use you to glorify himself. He even used Pharaoh to do that. And just think of all the people in Scripture that we look to as examples. 
over and over again. God is doing that now in His church, leaving examples and legacies for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, our co-workers, those of us who we go to school with. Everybody's watching. Everybody sees what you're going through. Trust God. Trust His design for your life. And fourthly and lastly, respond to God's gracious calling. That's for those of you who are not in the body of Christ. God is calling you. You can't, don't think that, well, maybe I'm not one of those who he's going to show mercy on. Maybe he hasn't chosen to bestow mercy on me. Maybe I'm a vessel of wrath. Well, you don't know that. Nobody knows that. And if you, and God wants you to respond to his call over and over in the Bible, God calls out to people to come to him. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that God desires that all men shall be what? Saved. All men. I believe all means all, not just the elect. Matter of fact, Jesus in John 7.37 says this, or it says this, Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Anyone. That's the call of God. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. God's gracious call is to the world. Will you respond? If you're not in this family, I pray that you will respond today. For now, and today is a day of salvation, Scripture says. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't think, well, I'm probably not, you know, I'm probably not called. That's just an excuse. If you feel that calling, Jesus says to come and drink. And you will have, from the innermost being, rivers of living water. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. How it's a continual reminder of your sovereignty, and of your love and compassion and mercy. And Lord God, even when we don't understand all things and maybe sometimes have a hard time swallowing it, I pray that we would trust you despite that. Lord, help our unbelief and help our lack of faith so that we might trust you more, that we might live for you. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and compassion that you've given to your saints. We pray, Lord, for those in this room this morning who have not experienced that. Lord, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior, that from their seats they would cry out to you and admit that they're thirsty, that something's missing in their life. And Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit as they repent of their sins and cry out to you. We pray that you would do that for them, Lord. And for those of us who know you, may you strengthen our faith in you. May you help us to trust you more and to stay faithful in every situation so that you might use us to glorify yourself. We thank you again for all that you've given us. And we pray that.